Uh, we have a fantastic session planned. Well, you know that, otherwise you wouldn't be here. We've got James King, the global China editor for the Financial Times, a writer and thinker about China, or perhaps the other way around, a thinker and a writer about China uh, for a very, very long time. And I, I probably shouldn't say quite how long, should I, James? Uh, I'll leave that. I'll leave that for you to... Uh, Go ahead. It's freedom of the freedom of the press. Freedom, freedom, freedom of politicians in this case. But yes, exactly. Um, but look, it's 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 several decades. So I have to say thank you very much. Now, right, this session of uh, the China Research Group is one that uh, many of us on the steering group have been waiting for for a long time because James uh, has inspired uh, many uh, of our thinking. Uh, about China over recent years. Uh, Neil, in fact, was just talking about James's book written in 2001, two, about China Shakes yeah. the World, uh, which, uh, which was really one of the seminal works of realizing the impact that China was going to have on all our lives as it reverts to mean, if you like, as it uh, retakes its rightful place as one of the great powers of the global economy. And so to have James here, who's been writing for the FT and indeed writing uh, her own account uh, for a number of years is a huge pleasure. I'm not going to say very much more to introduce him because uh, his words will speak for themselves. But this session was really to talk about uh, how we see China today, what the challenges are, how it works with technology, how it works with industry, how it works with others around the area. So I'm going to open it up now to uh, James to introduce for uh, a few minutes. Uh, five, 10 minutes, something like that. And then uh, we're going to take questions. So with no further ado, James, thank you so much. We're hugely grateful that you're here. Over to you. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I've been uh, checking your, your website recently, and I must say I, I was uh, listening to the videos you've got, got up there. You've got a fantastic uh, uh, series of views of, of China in all its complexity uh, these days. Um, I, uh, just before I begin, I'd like to say that um, uh, one of my roles here at the FT is as editor of Tech Asia, which is a newsletter on, it's a weekly newsletter on the, the entire region's key tech themes. And uh, it's free if you wanna uh, um, search it on uh, the FT website. So please do sign up if you're interested. So my preamble would be, um, to look at the big picture. And I think that we're all pretty well aware that something big is changing in the world. And in the world of technology, I think it can be summarized by saying that technology now has become geopolitical. You can see this in many different ways. Um, one of them obviously is the way that the US has blocked some semiconductor exports to China. China, for its part, has looked to limit US access to rare earth metals, which of course are crucial for the manufacture of many tech products. Several countries have banned China's Huawei from running their 5G telecommunications networks. India has banned the Chinese uh, viral social media app TikTok uh, following border clashes between the two countries. The US, meanwhile, sorry, the UK, meanwhile, is investigating NVIDIA's proposed acquisition of ARM, um, the, the US, uh, the, the UK chip designer on national security grounds. And also in the UK, intelligence agencies are pushing for new curbs on so-called smart city technology, 
supplied by Chinese companies over fears that it could be used to spy on people. And many of those technology surveillance cameras, et cetera, are in London and elsewhere. So what does all this mean? To me, these are all symptoms of an important shift in the way the world works. Uh, I first went to China in the 1980s, and since then, most of my career has been tied up with China's emergence into the world and the supercharging effect this has had on globalization. But now I think it looks as if techno-globalism is very clearly in decline and the world is turning its back on a new type of, on this type of international cooperation that we've had since the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, John Thornhill, the uh, FT's innovation editor, has a column this week showing that since 2016, the number of new regulations toward tightening the environment for technology, as opposed to loosening the environment technology, has grown uh, tremendously. Personally, I think this is partly down to the West's changing attitude towards China, and partly due to the fact that new types of technology make uh, globalization of tech these days very hard to achieve. By this, what I mean is that, uh, let's say these days uh, you export a car from one place to another. In the old days, that was just a car. But now, so much technology has embedded within it a broader kind of networked ecosystem that you buy your car, you sign up to an app, that app will take your data and goodness knows what with it. So the, the difference in the characteristics of the tech products that we buy and sell has made them much more open to suspicion and to controversy. The sorts of questions that naturally arise now on a personal and national level are, is my data being collected? Is a foreign power spying on me? Can a foreign power flick a kill switch uh, to important parts of our national tech infrastructure and effectively shut down aspects of our daily life? And because almost half of global trade these days is digital, this problem is very pronounced. Trust issues have suddenly become front and center to global trade and investment. There are many, many examples. Just let me uh, rattle off a few. In Japan the other day, the government said it's gonna scale back its use of a popular messaging app. This is called Line, but th th this is like uh, WhatsApp in Japan. Um, after its operator acknowledged that employees of an affiliate in China had been able to view Japanese users' personal information. The personal data that these guys in China could access included the names, phone numbers, identification numbers, and even some of the messages that were being sent. Um, another example, Tesla, uh, obviously very famous uh, car company making a big splash in China these days, but lately it's been attracting a lot of negative publicity in China. Elon Musk, the chief executive denied this month that Tesla cars could be used to spy following reports that the Chinese military has banned Teslas from its facilities. Um, 
Musk told a, a Chinese forum that the company had a strong incentive to be confidential. And he said, if Tesla uh, used cars to spy in China or anywhere else, we would get shut down. But that's not allayed the, uh, the suspicions of the military. Another affront to trust shows the way in which promises that can be made in earnest today can be made redundant tomorrow. Um, in, in this regard, Apple is expected in coming weeks to roll out changes to its iPhones to give users more assurance on privacy. But uh, some of China's biggest technology companies, including ByteDance and Tencent, have already said that they're testing a tool to bypass Apple's new privacy rules. So they're testing a tool to bypass the privacy rules that haven't yet even been rolled out by Apple uh, in the US. All of this means, I think, that mistrust gets a big leg up. And mistrust is in every sphere between China and the West these days. Uh, we can think back to the controversies over the origins of COVID, Huawei and 5G, wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, and just this week, uh, Beijing pushing back after the UK parliament approved a non-binding motion saying that China's policies in the Northwest frontier province of Xinjiang amounted to genocide. But just to finish, I want to say that while technological bifurcation looks like it will become an increasingly pronounced trend. Other forms of engagement between China and the West remain strong. For instance, there has been a flood of overseas money into China's stock and bond markets. Uh, the latest numbers show that total foreign ownership of Chinese stocks and bonds reached 837 billion US dollars. Um, that's an eightfold increase since 2014. So as ever, it's not a simple picture. Um, it's not all the arrows are pointing in the same direction. The interdependency between China and the West is such that you can see trends starting, stopping and reversing simultaneously quite a lot these days. But overall, I'd say that when it comes to technology, levels of suspicion are at highs unprecedented since the reform and opening period began just over 40 years ago. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I have to say the, 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 the challenge with a conversation like this is it can go in so many different directions because the questions you raise uh, affect literally every part of our lives. But perhaps I can begin, um, and I'm going to take the prerogative, I'm afraid, of asking a couple of questions before we throw it open uh, to others. So uh, please don't think I'm going to dominate totally, but I do think it's worth uh, probing a bit down these lines. If we can talk about decoupling, because this is effectively what you're suggesting that the that tech decoupling is is going to reverse some form of globalization or some, some of the globalization that we've seen in recent years. Perhaps I can ask you to talk about two different areas. One is semiconductors. Uh, this clearly brings into the question of Taiwan. And the second is money. The internationalization of the renminbi, the growth of Alipay in Southeast Asia, the challenge that this poses to the SWIFT system and indeed much more. Can you please talk about both of those and just tell me how you see Taiwan's place? And uh, this, of course, brings up questions about Paracel Islands and about uh, different forms of probing 
by the Chinese military. And again, talk about uh, Southeast Asia and different forms of financial outreach, perhaps even control. Uh, sure. Thanks very much, Tom. So um, you've zeroed in on what is really ground zero uh, in the US-China tech rivalry, uh, semiconductors, and particularly the role that, that Taiwan plays. Um, the reason that semiconductors are so sensitive is because this is China's Achilles heel. Um, in almost every other high-tech industry, China is approaching the cutting edge of global technology, or even in some cases surpassed it, and is actually you know, the, the leading edge of global tech. But in semiconductors, China remains far behind. Um, just to give you a, a, a quick bit of um, context on that, according to a, a now famous plan that the Chinese government came out with called Made in China 2025, China wants by the year 2025 to supply 70% of its demand for, for semiconductor chips uh, through indigenous companies. But uh, it is, as I said, far behind on that. If you look at the current situation, only about 10% of the chips sold in China come from companies that are headquartered in China. If you include foreign companies that have uh, chip making facilities in China, that number gets to about 20%. So with just four years to go uh, until 2025, China is way, way behind the 70% target that it wants to achieve. This means that China is still critically reliant on US chip manufacturers. Also, of course, there's Samsung and SK Hynix from South Korea and some of the Japanese manufacturers, but, but we're really talking about the big US manufacturers and chips made by Taiwanese companies such as TSMC and U UMC um, on, a, you know, on a contract basis from uh, US companies. Um, this has created all kinds of tensions. Um, and I think one of the main ones is that the Taiwan chip companies are caught in the middle. They are increasingly collateral damage in the US-China tech war. Uh, they're also immensely profitable right now because of this huge global shortage of semiconductors. But just to give you a sense of how vulnerable they are, let me just cite a, a recent case. This happened this month. So um, the US government put a Chinese company, uh, a Chinese chip maker, which is called Phytum, Phytium Technology, onto a blacklist because Washington reckons this Phytium Technology has links to the Chinese military. Right Now this fighting technology, although it's not a well-known chip company in China, it is, at, it is one of the important Chinese companies trying to climb the technology ladder and um, reduce China's reliance on overseas manufacturers, right? So it's an important company. Um, but um, because of this, because of the US blacklisting, a Taiwanese chip designer called Alchip Technologies, again, not famous, but it's a very important company, had to suspend business with Phytium uh, technology. Um, now this meant that the share price of the Taiwanese uh, uh, chip maker, Alchip, 
was absolutely cratered. It was hammered uh, for you know several days in a row, and I think this you know this shows how uh, Taiwan is uniquely vulnerable in the big U.S.-China rivalry over chips. Uh, just to just to finish that point uh, and give a sense of of what we're talking about in terms of numbers, um, a leading U.S. industry body ha has said uh, just just last month, I think, that if uh, this rivalry was to cause a year-long shutdown in Taiwanese chip production, which is obviously a worst-case scenario, then the worldwide cost to electronic companies would be 490 billion US dollars. So a huge number, a very considerable uh, hemorrhage in the whole global supply chain um, is possible if U.S.-China rivalry over chips really gets white hot. Okay, well, look, I, you, you've, you've covered there many of the aspects. Maybe I could just push you again on the, on the financial aspects, because seeing the way that um, the Chinese state is uh, seeking to undermine or rather change its dependence on SWIFT technology and the Americans' ability to sanction individuals, indeed, some of us who've now been officially sanctioned by the Chinese state are realizing that it's rather more symbolic than real. How do you see uh, the different forms of internationalization of the renminbi? Do you see it as a, a, a likely possibility or do you think it's one of those things that's more aimed at than achievable? Right, uh, great question. Thanks, Tom. So uh, while, while chips show China's vulnerability, uh, China's intention to move to a digital renminbi is a, a, another form of China trying to assert control in, a, in an equally crucial area of technology. Um, so just, just let me go into a little bit of background first. Um, you, you probably know that the digital renminbi is being rolled out across China at the moment. It's still in the test phase, um, but you know several cities in China are, are testing it and it seems to be working fine. Um, the aim is that by early next year, um, at, the, at the time of the uh, Winter Olympics, which are going to be held early in 2022, uh, China will be using the digital renminbi fairly widely, and this will be part of the Olympics. The Olympics will be a showcase for the digital renminbi. Um, the reason why it wants to do this is to assert two aspects of crucial control. The first is that it takes back control from private uh, Chinese companies, uh, in this case, Alibaba and Tencent, that run the very popular um, WeChat, uh, Pay and Alipay payment platforms. These are used by about 2 billion people, not only in China, but also around the world. Um, but launching the digital renminbi will be, will be competition for those two companies. And it will mean that the Chinese government gets to decide who gets renminbi um, and how transactions using the digital renminbi happen all over the country. The next crucial aspect of this, and this really comes down to control, is that the central bank or whatever central authority needs to will be able to monitor in real time every individual transaction in China and abroad. So that um, there is supposed to be a facility here called controlled anonymity, 
but nobody knows how that will work. So it is highly possible that if the Communist Party of China wants to check on any transaction it likes at any point, it will be able to do so. Um, so I think that that goes to you know uh, the, the the question you had about 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 control. Um, and I think in many cases of China's sort of tech piece now, we can see that the basic aim of the Chinese government is to increase its self-reliance, increase its level of control, and reduce its vulnerability to foreign suppliers, whether that be in semiconductors or whether that be in, in, in a case like the renminbi. Now, just to finish on the renminbi, Tom, because you did ask about internationalization, some people think that the digital renminbi will speed up the internationalization of the renminbi and allow it to challenge the US dollar as the world's reserve currency. In my view, there's no clear reason to think that. In fact, I would argue the opposite. I would say that the, 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 the lack of trust around the world towards a currency that gives the Communist Party of China insight into all of your transactions on a real-time basis could well stymie the internationalization of the renminbi rather than promote it. Thank you very much. I can, I can see the argument on that one. Um, I think quite a lot of us would uh, draw uh, a veil over, uh, well, be extremely concerned over that. Can I, before I open it up to questions, just ask about two other subjects which I'm going to connect slightly slightly ghostly I hope I hope you don't mind the first is um, the pressure on some of the tech giants so we've seen Jack Ma and Alibaba uh, sorry and um, Ant Group uh, you know suffering for their comments uh, I think maybe the, the lightest way of putting it uh, in recent uh, months and the penalties being pretty clear if you challenge the authority of the Communist Party but we've also seen an attempt to use similar businesses to expand the influence of uh, China and indeed the Communist Party, but China as a, as a whole, uh, around the world using the so-called Belt and Road Initiative. I was wondering, how do these two uh, reactions equate? How does it work? Uh, how do you think it works if you, one side you're pushing cheap loans and the other side you're putting your uh, businessman in, well, not yet in prison, but certainly... Uh, you're making sure that they behave. Right, very good question. I think the um, there's a couple of separate things going on. I mean, they may well be related, but I, but I would treat them separately, I think. Uh, the first is that uh, China, no doubt, and this relates to the control point that I, that I was just talking about, wants to put private ent enterprise, private business, the private sector into its place. That doesn't mean that it wants to, um, you know, rationalize it out of existence. Far from it. The, the Chinese Communist Party knows that private enterprise is still the driving force of the economy. Um, however, it doesn't want private enterprise getting too strong. And in the case of, uh, of Jack Ma and some of the other uh, actions that have been taken recently, it also doesn't want big private tech monopolies to get to, 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 to build up. Um, and I think that that is what's really happening 
in the case of Ant, the Ant Group's cancelled IPO, that was an IPO supposed to raise 37 billion at the, uh, towards the end of last year, and it was cancelled at the last minute, as everybody knows. It was also part of the 2.8 billion fine, uh, dollars fine on Alibaba, and what looks like uh, is going to be another final Maytran, which is a big, uh, um, you know, um, food delivery company uh, in China. Um, the the authorities in China are trying to crack down on monopolistic behavior. That's the I think the the main thing that's going on. But I don't believe that uh, the authorities want to punish uh, Alibaba and Tencent and Meituan and the other big private sector tech companies so that they're unable to go out abroad and be national champions abroad. I think it's, uh, I think in this case, it's, it's more kind of patient gardening than, uh, uh, than some kind of broadside against, um, against private companies. So when it comes to the Belt and Road, there are other issues in play. Um, one of them is that a lot of Belt and Road loans have gone sour, particularly in Africa. And many of the big Chinese financial institutions that have propelled the Belt and Road by financing the investment in all kinds of infrastructure, mostly in the developing world, um, those financial institutions are now reigning in their horns. So there has definitely been a cooling of the Belt and Road, but I don't expect that this will be more than a transitory, transient type of cooling. I think that once things get back on track with the global economy, once um, you know the, uh, the, the the Communist Party has uh, has decided what it's going to do with all of these loans that have soured in Africa, for instance, um, then there will be another surge um, in in lending. Yeah, well, look, can I can I first of all thank you very much for your answers to me, but now I'll hand over to the brains of the outfit, Neil O'Brien, who um, will have a go at you. Uh, if that's true, we're all in trouble. No, I was going to comment on that exact point, which is really the extent to which um, uh, Beijing does regard um, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and so on as national champions. Clearly, we've seen um, companies like Facebook attempt to sort of enter um, China, be repulsed, and then come to take quite a different view on it. Um, uh, but I, I was interested in what um, is known about the ability or the success of um, Beijing in kind of exporting these national champions and um, getting their use in other third countries. Obviously, it's quite easy for us here in um, the UK to think, well, you know, we all use um, uh, sort of Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, so on and so forth. So very few people here use um, uh, the so-called BAT um, group of companies. But of course, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, that is not true. And um, so I, I was interested in both, you know, how it is going in terms of, you know, the global competition for, for, for um, to be the dominant players in these markets, the extent to which there is policy behind that from Beijing to kind of, you know, promote that as part of Belt and Road or other um, um, initiatives. And to some extent, how some of these other security things you've already mentioned about user data kind of play into play into those kind of um, competitions. You know, in, in the industrial sphere, you know, it's quite clear there's a sort of battle, very clear technological battle between the US and um, 
China. Um, and to what extent is that just mirrored in, in kind of these big tech firms as well? Right, thank you. Um, I, I think there's a number of, of different things in play here. The most important is from the perspective of Beijing is that China wants to be the world's leading technology power, uh, well, officially by 2049, but unofficially uh, much sooner than that. And therefore it realizes that companies like um, Alibaba, Tencent, you know, Meituan, Baidu, the ones you mentioned, plus several others um, are crucial to that regard. Uh, firstly, because they are the main generators of growth in the Chinese economy, those big private companies, but also because they are essential to Chinese innovation. And innovation is vitally important um, to the Communist Party uh, towards achieving that goal of being the world's leading technology power. Um, can I just give you a couple of numbers there, I think are really uh, revealing. Uh, so at the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is a, an office at the UN, China overtook the US last year as the world's biggest filer of patent applications. So uh, previous to that, the US had dominated uh, every year since 1978. So this was a huge change. In Europe, uh, a similar trend is underway. Um, you've got um, Chinese uh, awards to Chinese companies of patents by the European Patent Office growing at over 10% in 2020. Uh, that's far faster than any other country. And if the current trend continues, the Chinese companies will be number two to the US in terms of the numbers of European patents awarded uh, by, let's say, five or maybe six years from now. So they'll have overtaken Germany and Japan because uh, they're currently in fourth uh, position. So there is a contradiction within China between, you know, um, uh, you know, by the Chinese authorities on how to view these private companies. On the one hand, they drive growth. On, uh, in, in the second place, they drive innovation. Um, but on the other side of it, they can be monopolistic. They can be more freewheeling than the Communist Party would like. They represent at times a threat to the control that the Communist Party exerts over society. And I think everybody uh, will have noticed that all of these strands, all of these trends coalesce in the figure of Jack Ma himself. Jack Ma was a national hero um, until he made a speech that directly criticized the communist authorities. Uh, that was shortly before the Ant Group's IPO was supposed to happen at the end of last year. And then of course, a, uh, you know, a, a cascade of consequences happened. One of which was the cancellation of the Ant Group IPO and other has been the virtual disappearance of Jack Ma. I think he's only been in, in public once. Well, it was a video that he recorded um, in, um, in, in a room somewhere. So um, you can see in the person of Jack Ma, the very clear contradiction, the very clear tension 
that the Communist Party is trying to balance when it comes to the big tech companies. Thank you very much. Um, the, there was a question here uh, in the in the um, in the in the question box, uh, which I'm going to read out if that's all right, from Rosalie Revago, which is about: uh, Do I do you think the West is losing the battle over international technical standards? Clearly, this is a huge challenge for us all. And if the BRI is setting the standards for the next generation of tech, uh, are we about to lose out, or are we uh, are, are we still in the game? Uh, I think that if you look at the trajectory of, of patents uh, that I've just mentioned, um, and then if you conclude um, that China will be dominating many of the new technologies, um, not, not in the distant future, now and in the next five years, then I think you have to draw the conclusion that China will start to have an outsized influence on international standards. You can see this in 5G. So 5G telecoms, Huawei's presence was far greater than any other company. Um, I, I believe uh, ZTE was in there too. The Chinese, this is a number I don't quite remember, but from my faulty memory, I think Chinese companies dominated about 60% of the industrial standards inherent in the 5G telecom um, um, technology. And considering that 5G telecom technology is the bedrock of telecoms going forward and all of the data powered, highly networked ecosystems that we're all gonna be living through and that we're living, that we're holding this uh, webinar through, that's a very important um, point. So yes, I think the West is, I don't know if you, if you say losing, um, I don't know if it's quite as binary as that, but certainly China's influence over international tech standards is growing very quickly indeed. And I believe this poses the question of trust that I started with at the very beginning in a very sharp way. If you can't trust uh, the Chinese companies to be acting responsibly with your data and not to switch off your infrastructure if bilateral relations get really rocky, then um, Obviously, it means or it suggests that the future of technology in this world cannot be interdependent, must be bifurcated between different spheres of influence. Thank you. So uh, Andrew Decaney asked a question about uh, the unlikely prospect of persuading TSMC to relocate some of their facilities to the UK. And I think this plays straight into your question there, because, of course, traditionally, the UK has played a role as a standard setter, as a regulator uh, for various different aspects of global trade and uh, international manufacturing. I'd be interested to know what role do you think the UK can play in this, especially if we don't get the relocation, which, uh, as Andrew quite rightly puts it, seems unlikely. Right. It's a, it's a very good question. I mean, this is the key question that all countries around the world are asking at the moment. If they can't trust the global supply chain, if they can't trust interdependence between, you know, to put it bluntly, the West and China, then they have to look towards self-reliance themselves. The focus has to be on the resilience of their own systems. And that's why the US just tried to get TSMC to build a 12 billion, uh, uh, sorry, 11 billion or 12 billion dollar US plant. I think it was in Wisconsin, and that's now fallen through, I believe. 
Is it possible that TSMC would uh, do the same thing in the UK? I, I don't know. The UK has some big chip companies. I mentioned uh, Arm at the, at the beginning. Um, but I think that uh, in the future and not in the distant future, like right now, um, countries are going to want to insist on being able to uh, assure supply of crucial technologies. And that certainly includes semiconductor chips. Excellent. Now, can I, and forgive me, can I, can I just push you a little bit more on the, on the UK's role? Because one of the things that we raised when the Huawei issue was coming up is spying was clearly an issue for many uh, and whether or not we were effectively nesting a dragon in our future technology. But one of the reasons why this really mattered to, to many of us, me in particular, was that in many ways we were seeking to change the way that we geared the international community and our, and our commercial outlook. The reason I say that is because we were looking to change from effectively a distributed system, you know, the, the, the kind of system that we have today where we recognize individuals, companies, and the state as different entities into a more united system. And whatever we think of the culture of, uh, you know, whatever we think about the Chinese system or, or, or our own, the truth is whichever one you like codes its culture into the uh, into the very binary code that is that is the, the, the you know the enabling technology behind it. So, do you think that the UK has an ability to change some of that, or or, or, or to push back with Europe, with Australia, with the United States, with Japan, or is this something that we're going to just have to accept and deal with a changing economic outlook, a changing global outlook, uh, where the culture is going to be Chinese or rather communist? My, uh, look, I mean, you know, I, I'm a journalist, you know, I, I try to report on things, I try to understand situations, I, I've never spent a single day as a policymaker, but, but my, my characterization of the challenge that the UK faces would be roughly that um, there are key functions of state and there are key areas in which security of supply um, and you know um, uh, key kind of uh, tele I mean infrastructure uh, needs to be secured and um, if those areas are squared away in other words if the UK can be sure that its telecom system its nuclear power system uh, its water system and several other key crucial areas of uh, infrastructure are dependable, then I think um, it doesn't matter too much. You know, in, in other words, then it is possible to be part of a global supply chain. But if you have key functions of your economy that are in the hands of an acknowledged rival or are crucially dependent on supply from an acknowledged rival um, and, uh, well, you know, the UK's uh, stance on China is a little bit ambiguous at the moment, but certainly our biggest ally, the US, regards China unambiguously as a strategic rival, then I think you've got a problem. You've got a problem because bad things can happen. You know, your, your systems are hostage, really, to uh, all kinds of pressure from a country that doesn't have your necessarily have your best interests at heart. 
But so, 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 so my feeling is if you create walled gardens around the crucial functions of your country, that leaves you free to engage uh, in all the other areas. And, uh, you know, that would be much more consistent with the longstanding inclination of the UK to be a global and open economy. And one of the points that you raised earlier was uh, the ability to scrutinise and the understanding uh, of China in I mean, the British Parliament, but actually in, in uh, parliaments around the world. Do you think that's changed? Um, I think that um, it's very difficult to scrutinise what, what China's doing. Um, and so much of the mistrust that's building up so quickly with regard to China is because uh, certain aspects of you know, China's own statements uh, make it very difficult, very opaque and very difficult to trust. What I'm trying to um, point to here is several laws that have come out in recent years. Uh, for instance, the, um, the national intelligence law, the cybersecurity law, both of which require Chinese companies to hand over to the uh, security forces in China any data that is required. So let's say it's Alibaba and they're operating in the UK and they, as part of their operations through some app, um, get hold of data that the Communist Party would like to see. Alibaba must, this is just an example, of course, must hand over that data to the Communist Party according to these two laws. The other thing that makes uh, Chinese tech companies rather difficult to trust or rather opaque is what's called the the military civil fusion um, agenda of the Chinese government. Uh, this is again clear, it's published. Um, all Chinese companies that are required by the Chinese military to hand over technology to boost the military must do it. Uh, and there is, no, um, there is no ambiguity about that at all. So you have a, uh, this incredibly vibrant um, tech ecosystem in China that is innovating faster than any other country in the world and is creating very impressive companies like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, the other ones that we've mentioned um, that are expanding their global presence and yet the level, the level of trust um, that they earn from their customers and from governments around the world is undermined by the fact that China has published laws and publish policies that would ask those companies to hand over data, hand over technology to the Chinese security state. It's a fundamental problem. It's so difficult to, to see how you can square that. Well, you lead straight on to a, a rather good question by Nathan Rogers, which is, do you think we've reached the point where we have to choose between the United States and China? Is it possible to balance this relationship between these very, very different beasts? Or, or will the UK become simply a third party broker between the two or have to choose one? Uh, that is a very good question. It's also very difficult to answer. Um, I would say, um, going back to my earlier um, reply, that if the crucial functions of the economy are resilient, in other words, if they are not dependent on China or, or other less than trusted foreign uh, countries, 
then I think that frees the UK up to engage as it will and UK companies to engage as they will uh, around the world. Um, but if those crucial areas, strategic areas are, um, you know, um, uh, dependent on, on Chinese investment, dependent on Chinese supply, then that very much impinges upon the freedom of the UK's companies and the UK's government to, to engage with the global economy, I, I, I would say. When it comes to choosing between China and the US, I think the truth is that the UK has already chosen um, or would choose the US. Um, and uh, although I, I know things are not always plain sailing with the US, the US is our ally and China is, is described by the US as a strategic competitor, a strategic rival. So uh, um, I don't see that as a straight choice myself, but as I say, I'm just a journalist. I'm, I'm you know, nowhere near policymaking. Well, you say that, but you have, of course, kept a very close eye on policymakers, not just here, but also in China. And I'm just wondering how much of the uh, Chinese official or Chinese political leadership position shifted in tone uh, towards democracies in the West in the past sort of months and years. Because one of the things that we we often think of is is the is the changing nature of the Xi regime. In, in, indeed, that the Chairman Xi, you know, since he came in in 2012, and really since. Uh, he started pushing in 2015-16, you can pick your start date as you choose, that we're seeing a, a different from Jiang Zemin or, or Hu Jintao or indeed Deng Xiaoping with the hide and bide strategy. H how much do you think that's real and how much do you think that's just a, actually what we're seeing is a natural continuum from uh, those days? Uh, I think there has been a step change um, and I think you can see that in the laws and the regulations that have come out. Uh, the laws that I've just mentioned, um, national intelligence, cybersecurity, the civil, uh, the military civil fusion made in China 2025. Uh, there are there are a huge number of uh, very clear policy statements and laws uh, that you can point to to say that under Xi Jinping, China has a much greater focus on internal control um, and on self-reliance technologically and in every other way. Um, and also you can see in the actions of uh, Chinese diplomats, this uh, the wolf warrior assertiveness around the world, um, the very clear criticism that the Chinese foreign ministry, the, you know, the, the top officials in the Chinese foreign ministry gave the Americans um, not just a month ago, um, that China sees itself now as at least the equal of the US. It is not going to bend the knee to anyone. Um, it is, you know, it's very clear that it wants to set its own destiny and it will not um, uh, uh, you know, be accepting influence from, from other countries. And it also is hugely antagonistic towards accepting criticism from other countries as, as you can see with the current issues over Xinjiang um, and the incarceration of the Uyghurs. Um, so it's a very different China from what it was five years ago. Uh, I won't say that, you know, this wasn't potentially in the mind of the Communist Party five years or 10 years ago. I think partly this is a function of China's growing power that, you know, it feels like it needs to be more assertive to create more space for itself in the world. 
Um, but but uh, the empirical evidence is overwhelming that under Xi Jinping, China has become a much more um, uh, assertive player on the global stage. Now, you, you know, one of the things that uh, raises its questions there, of course, is when we look at the debt issues, and you've touched on this, uh, the bad banks, as it were, Waring, I think, is one of them, the Beijing uh, bad bank. Uh, you see a dependence on foreigners uh, that still exists, despite, as you rightly identify, as you clearly identify, sorry, the, uh, the sort of growing national confidence of uh, the Xi regime. Do, do you think that uh, foreign money is really keeping it afloat? Do you think that China's dependence on foreign trade is greater than actually the Xi regime fully uh, well, accepts publicly? Or do you think that actually the internal market is now of a strength that... Uh, uh, you know, the, the actions like Wang Yi at Anchor Economy. Yeah, I think that um, uh, foreign money is not keeping China afloat. Um, the, uh, there are two sources, really, of, of foreign money. One is the, uh, well, there are three, let, let, let's say three main sources. Foreign investment going in into Chinese industry, then there's the trade, and then there's the capital flows, as I mentioned earlier. So those capital flows of about 830 or 840 odd billion US dollars uh, amount to less than 5% of the money invested in the Chinese capital markets. So that's stock and bond markets. It's, uh, it's not nothing. And uh, you know the increase in the foreign money going in has certainly helped China deal with its very huge, as you pointed out, debt problem. Um, but it, it's, not, it's not at the level where you could say that the foreigners are financing China's debt to a, you know, to a significant extent, and, and nor is it at the level where you could say that China's dependent on foreign capital inflows. Um, when it comes to you know, fic, uh, you know, um, foreign direct investment into China, again, you know, it's important. Um, but it's not the money that's necessarily the most important part of that. It's more the technological transfer that uh, China gets from the big companies that invest. I mean, Tesla, I mentioned earlier, the likelihood now, according to our sources, is that the Teslas made in China will be almost 100% Chinese made, including the engine, uh, within a few years' time. And there are Chinese companies that we understand uh, are already being considered to make the engine for the Tesla 3 in China. That's a, that's a pattern that's been repeated again and again and again by the world's biggest tech giants after they move into China. The pressure to transfer technology is enormous and the benefit to the Chinese economy. Well, we've seen it in China's emergence as close to uh, the world's leading tech power now. Um, and in terms of, of trade, bilateral trade, um, the numbers are very small. China's trade surplus is uh, less than, was well, just slightly more than 1% of GDP. So it's not, it's not critical either. So the conclusion from that is that uh, China's domestic self-reliance is already very considerable. It is not really dependent on foreign investment, foreign capital inflows, or foreign trade. But the Chinese government, through this 
new policy called dual circulation is very keen to increase self-reliance even further. Well, that's, a, that's an unpicking of globalization that's one step beyond even. Can I just ask for one last question? We've got a good question from Annabelle Timsit, who asks, what's it like to be a journalist in Hong Kong at this particular point? And how do you feel able to do your job without interference? <laughs> um, I think the answer is that it's a lot easier to do your job in Hong Kong than it is as a foreign journalist in the mainland. Um, you will probably know that many of our colleagues in the mainland have been thrown out. Um, many of them are on very short-term visas, like a month to be renewed every month, or maybe three months to be renewed every three months. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a tough operating environment. Uh, China seems to think that the foreign media is somehow its enemy, um, which is very unwise because actually the foreign media has been uh, you know, reporting China's rise over the last 40 years without rest. Um, you know, the, I, I've been doing this for more than 35 years that was the, the, the number you were looking for at the beginning, Tom. Um, and most of my career, really until the last couple of years, has all been about engagement of the world with China. It's been overall a highly positive narrative for China. It's very difficult for foreign journalists to really understand why the Chinese government is being so vengeful towards them these days. But I think personally, I think it speaks to the extreme sensitivity to criticism that the Chinese authorities have these days. Uh, working in Hong Kong, honestly, to tell you the truth, is an absolute delight. Hong Kong is uh, a fabulous place to be. Um, it's got its own tech boom, um, just, just growing up here. Um, and, um, you know, of course, there has been a, um, a sizable crackdown on the demonstrators in, La in um, the 2019 demonstrations, a lot of those people have been rounded up are, and are now in jail. But as for the general environment for a foreign journalist here, it's, it's still pretty good. Well, look, I'm, I'm delighted to hear it. And, and after 35 years, I was being discreet. But, you know, if you, if you wish to age yourself, that's up to you. I have to say it's, it's fascinating to hear how you're carrying on. And, and, you know, for all of us who are following your work uh, with enormous interest, I'm very grateful for your insights today. And, and thank you very much for joining uh, the China Research Group today and uh, indeed for sharing your wisdom. It really is a huge pleasure to hear from you. This is, a, this is a question that isn't going away, as you rightly say, and one that demands more and more understanding from our side as well as from China's. Now, my last point is the same one as always. Please do follow us. This uh, recording will be turned into a podcast, which you can get on wherever you get your podcasts. Apple's got it. I'm sure others have got it too. Um, there is, of course, Twitter and uh, the website where you can download it. So please do follow our work, do support our work, uh, virtually at least, and uh, sign up to our newsletters. We do a daily newsletter on uh, what's going on, and then we do a weekly newsletter that sort of summarises on Saturday uh, where we think we're going. So look, please do join us and stay in touch with the work of the China Research Group and see how this important country is having such an influence on all of us. And with that, James, an enormous thanks from all of us. You've been an absolute star and extremely generous with your time. I know it's been hugely appreciated by all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tom.